Koitearapuru Sounds Inga reo, inga mana, raurangatirama, tēnā koutou katoa. This is the Magpie House, episode 3, Lilburn of the Valley, made for Sounds Centre for New Zealand Music, Koitearapuru, ko Kirsten Johnstone, Aho. Here in Aotearoa, magpies are a pest. They didn't fly over here. They were introduced from Australia in the 1860s to control the spread of pesky insects that were destroying imported crops. Anyone who grew up in a rural area, like I did, knows how aggressive magpies can be during breeding season. Tag-teaming parents swooping down, threatening to scalp an unsuspecting kid walking under the poplar trees. I'm still wary of them. But they're also pretty good singers. And it was their song, that quadlordladlwardle, that caught the air of poet Dennis Glover in 1941. The story goes that he was on his way to see fellow poet Alan Curnow at his house north of Christchurch when he stopped on the side of the road for a wee in a howling nor'wester and these black and white birds were singing their hearts out. Glover came to Curnow's house and sat down to write the poem that is now perhaps New Zealand's best known. When Tom and Elizabeth took the farm, the bracken made their bed, and quadloodle the magpie said. Of course, the poem's not about magpies. It's about the economic depression faced by many farmers in the 1930s. At the end of the poem, the mortgage brokers can't even give the farm away. But the magpies, they stay. Douglas Lilburn set a few of his friend Dennis Glover's poems to music. The magpies was one of them. Lilburn composed it in 1955 with an amateur country choir in Otago in mind, and while it was performed by them, it wasn't printed as sheet music until 1990. And as far as we know, this recording is the only one and was done by Otago University music students and pianist Tom McGrath for sounds recently, towards the end of 2021. The farm still there, mortgage corporations couldn't give it away. And But here, in this garden in Ascot Street, in the Wellington suburb of Thorndon, the only magpie is a black-and-white modernist house, and the song around these parts is that of a different bird. The tui are prolific around this garden. He loved the garden, yeah, for sure. Um, he called it his wilderness. Conservation architect Chris Cochran talking about Douglas Lilburn, who lived at Magpie House for over 40 years. And he loved the wilderness quality of it, but he also um, gardened very carefully in um, the vegetable patch out here, adjacent to the shed. Uh, at different times he had a very flourishing uh, vegetable garden there. There were one two fruit trees, but basically it was the wild nature of it that he loved, and um, the autumn colours 
and the birds and also the privacy that the garden gave. Douglas Gordon Lilburn was a very private man. You could almost be out in a small provincial town in the country, couldn't you? It's, it's remarkable how private it is. In this episode of The Magpie House, we're invading a little of that privacy to peek into the living room where Lilburn held court with aspiring young composers. Douglas would install himself in his easy chair at the vortex of his living room with the fire going and overlooking the, the valley there. Into the music room where he had a crisis of confidence. He realised that he was completely out of date. We'll march up the hill to university for exquisite the machines he became obsessed with. He'd spent about a year trying to figure out how he could control these things because, you know, they'd just fly all over the place. Wild electronic clichés. And we look over Lilburn's shoulder as he writes letters to his closest friends. I miss quarrelling with you. I should like to come to quarrel again sometime if it is possible. In late 1953, Douglas Lilburn moved into Wellington City from up the coast in Paikakiriki. The drive was too much for him. He was more of a walker, and in Thorndon, everywhere he needed to be was within walking distance. The university was a hike up the hill through Botanic Gardens, the New Zealand Broadcasting Service, where he spent a fair bit of time during the 1950s and 60s, was a short wander down towards Parliament. He had bought a house in Tinakuri Road, but when the Collins family outgrew their house on Ascot Terrace in late 1959, Lilburn was interested and bought it for £5,500. He moved in on Christmas morning that year. It gets early morning sun, but later in the day... Heavily shaded and cold in the winter especially. It's fairly sunless. Struggling fig tree in the corner of the garden too? Yeah, I don't know if they ripen. Those aren't going to ripen, are they? There, you can It's, it's, it's May. Now. It's May, yeah, <laughs> if they've missed it. If you go to the end of Lilburn's garden here, there's another property and then there's the Rita Angus Cottage. Rita Angus, the artist, Lilburn's longtime friend and one-time lover. As Lilburn's biographer Philip Norman told me, Rita Angus was... Close by, but just far enough away so that they wouldn't be throwing teacups at each other. (laughs) That Douglas was close by was a reason for Rita coming into the neighbourhood. Remember in episode one of The Magpie House, Rita and Douglas met in the early 40s and had a brief affair resulting in a miscarriage. Rita was distraught. The miscarriage, her pacifist stance on the war, her obsession with her art, it all got too much for her. And by the late 40s, she'd spent time in Sunnyside Hospital, diagnosed with toxic, exhaustive psychosis. In the early 50s, she'd moved a bit, from Waikanae to the far north, but Wellington pulled her back. In 1955, Rita bought a little old sunless cottage in Sydney Street West, just over teacup-throwing distance from Lilburn's. I think they were both quite combative people in many ways, you know. This is Jill Trevelyan. She's an art historian who wrote Rita's biography after finding those 400 letters between Rita and Lilburn in the Turnbull Library. She's pulled a few quotes from those letters out for me. She says, We live our separate lives for our respective arts, but I miss quarrelling with you. Quarrelling has been an important part of our relationship as composer and painter. I should like to come to quarrel again sometime if it is possible. A lovely winter's day, Rita. (laughs) 
that one's a note from 1961, but the earlier ones are dense with details. During the early 1940s, she might write to him several times a week. And these might be long letters, seven pages long. They might include poems and so on. Later on in life, they were living so close together, of course, there are far fewer letters, and they tend to be much shorter. She really saw him as someone who who could understand her as a fellow artist. Uh, So he was sort of her outlet. Um, She could explain herself to him. He would understand her. And Lilburn was loyal to Rita as a friend. He was always looking out for her and... um, buying her work, or at least offering to buy her work, because on many occasions she wouldn't allow him to have it. (laughs) She wanted to keep it herself. She preferred to live on oatmeal, you know, rather than sell sell a painting. Even to a very close friend like Lil Burnett, you know, art absolutely came first for both of them, and they were both very uncompromising people. The other artist that Lilburn had become close to in those Christchurch years had moved much further away. Despite the fact that Douglas MacDiarmid lived in Paris, the two Douglases maintained regular letter writing throughout this time. I think what he admired in both of them was that they lived for their art. You know, both of them he met, didn't he, when he was relatively young himself in the early 1940s. So, um, you know, often those friendships you make when you're young, they're very enduring, the people you meet at that critical time in your life. And certainly, you know, he maintained those relationships all his life. In the late 1950s, Douglas Lilburn was at a crossroads musically. In the years leading up to this point, Lilburn had taken a sabbatical to visit music institutions abroad in the US, Europe and England. He hadn't been overseas since 1940, and that was um, effectively pre-war and a 15-year period in which the world was really in upheaval. And reflecting all that upheaval was a real move in artistic circles and to find a new language that was going to incorporate the horrors, if you like, of what had happened over the war time. This was a time of change for classical music, and there were lots of reasons for it. Classical music had become tainted by its use in fascist propaganda, and a lot of composers didn't want to write music like they used to. The things they'd faced in the Second World War couldn't be expressed in the old musical language. Modernist composers such as Schoenberg had been banned by the Nazis and now became a symbol of resistance. Structures and conventions that had been in place for hundreds of years in music went out the window in favour of serialism and atonality, extended instrumental techniques and innovative experimentation. And all this went on at a time there was... um very little international exchange and it took some time for those lines of communication to come up again so things had progressed with um, great pace over in Europe and New Zealanders weren't able to keep abreast with what was happening Um, so Douglas went over there and there's this whole new music that he really hadn't had a chance to come to grips with so it was... um, quite a fright to him and uh, quite disheartening because he realised how old-fashioned he'd become in good old safe New Zealand, the other side of the world. Years later, Lilburn would tell a crowd in Christchurch that the trip had been... In many ways a painful experience. I realised acutely how provincial and inadequate my musical knowledge and composition technique were in the face of the new musical context I found there. Bleakly, it was either sink or swim... 
uh, musical terms, I had to bring myself up to date with several techniques. Uh, so five notes up in the air. He eventually got all 12 chromatic notes up in the air. He was talking about serialism, a method of composition that threw out old rules of tonality. Anyway, in 1961, Douglas was teaching at Victoria University, actively exploring these new styles. He saw himself in a completely different light uh, when he got there in that company. And uh, This is composer Jenny McLeod, who met Douglas when she was a student there. Contemporary serialism was in its heyday at the time that he went there. And, uh, of course, he'd had Fred breathing down his neck a bit for years, because Fred, Fred adored all that modern music. Played, you know, while he, he couldn't stop him playing it. Jenny had arrived in the department as a chain-smoking, leather-jacket-clad, scooter-riding 20-year-old piano student and immediately fell in with the head of department, Fred Page. He'd say to me, play it as though you wrote it yourself. <laughs> well, if only... Fred and Jenny quickly became firm friends. He just um, invited me home, you know, and, and Eve and him were fantastic cooks. Now, the pages had parties. What was outrageous was the people who were there, the food that was eaten, the music that you would hear, you know, the ad hoc performances. People like Margaret Nelson would be there all the time. And, uh, well, Lubin, Lubin was there in the early days before they sort of fell out. Jenny means Lilburn and Fred Page fell out. Margaret would, Margaret, because she had studied in California and used to babysit for Dave Brubeck and his family, she had a sort of bit of a jazz background. She would, when she'd get in, in the mood, she would sit down and start playing pieces that, like one was the Death Watch Beetle. It was very funny. Once she got as far as Margaret and the Death Watch Beetle, the party was well on its way. <laughs> Margaret would be one of those people who'd become a lifelong friend to Lilburn. He was a good pianist himself, although he would have said, I'm not a pianist. This is Margaret talking about Lilburn. She'd joined the staff of the Victoria University Music Department in 1960. She'd been a fan of Lilburn's piano pieces for a while, and Lilburn became a fan of Margaret's playing. He invited me to lunch at his new house, and also he invited the composer Larry Pruden. And I think he made some comment about, well, I knew you two were from Taranaki, so I thought you might like to have lunch. And uh, Douglas, in fact, was a a very good cook. And, of course, he had that farming background and and people in his family still growing things and delivering fresh eggs and delivering so many things from the farms that they seemed to have. and that would give him an excuse to invite people sometimes to come and have a meal and he'd, he'd do cook it. Never overcooked anything and just and added, you know, fresh little salads and things. And uh, he and he's very imaginative. He'd take risks sometimes putting things together, but like it was music, you know, it was notes of music. But they worked. And so... Uh, it was always a great pleasure to go there and, and uh, enjoy his food. Margaret had done her postgraduate study in California, and when she wanted to bring a little Antipodean flavour to her repertoire, she wrote to Douglas asking him to send her some sheet music. And he did that. And then, typically Douglas, I opened the music, 
here were some pieces of his, and he included, of course, pieces by David Farquhar, Larry Pruden, a number of others as well. And this is what he always did. It wasn't only going to be him. He, he said he wanted to help other composers to be recognised and have their music performed. And he simply did this all of his life. I thought it was quite astonishing at that time because I'd never met anyone who did things like that. At Victoria University, Margaret had the office right next to Douglas's. She became a great champion of his music. That was where I felt so lucky. Here's a composer, and I can just tap him on the shoulder and say, Douglas, are you doing anything tomorrow morning? Could I play, if I was planning to play some of his music in public or anything? I had this wonderful advantage of being able to say to Douglas, may I play it for you first so that I am sure that I'm on the right path? And would he have comments for you? Oh, yes. Yes, he did. What would he say? He'd just... They were usually very small things. He was always so encouraging. And then he sometimes would say, well, that's a bit like a... and, And I picked up, you know, a bit like a bird call somewhere. And then something else would be the sound of water. And um, it sort of gave me an idea of of the kind of characters in the sound he was after. But he did not allow me to be self-indulgent. He didn't allow anyone to be self-indulgent, I don't think. Um, He was quite self-indulgent when it came to enjoying his vino and things. Yes, the vino. We'll get to that. Having the office next to Lilburns had other perks, like a sonatina written especially for Margaret. When he wrote that sonatina number two for me, I just found it planted on the music stand of my piano in, in my study there because it was lunchtime. And when I got back, this manuscript was sitting on the music stand of the piano. I, well, my eyes nearly fell out. And I had no idea he he had done that. Well, that was an amazing moment. So in the first part of the 60s, Douglas was writing and teaching students such as Jenny McLeod and really fostering this new generation of composers coming up behind him. He wasn't a natural teacher, though, and it could be awkward. There'd be long patches where you just sat there uh, and there was this dead silence and you'd be waiting. Well, for, for, you know, the few words that he might say. Jenny had tried composing her own music before, only it didn't work out so well. The piece I wrote ended up being by Handel. I just, I dreamed this piece, but I, and I wrote it down. But then I discovered Handel had written it before me, and it was in a book of my mother's that I'd, that's where I'd come across it, and I must have played it once and just remembered it. It was Lilburn, who was teaching first-year harmony, who encouraged Jenny McLeod to try writing her own music again. the end of the first term, he said to the entire class, he said, off you go for the holidays, and why don't you see if you can write something? Write a little piece, a little piece for piano or something. And I, I had a ball. I wrote a little piece. Oh, that was really good. I enjoyed that little piece. So I wrote another little piece and another one. I ended up writing five, a whole piano suite. And uh, this time, that was my first real piece. How would his feedback on your own composition come across? Was he tactful? Was he blunt? Nothing. 
almost. Well, he, even if he didn't like what I did, he didn't say he didn't like it. Although you could you could really tell, I'd imagine. Um, so Douglas kind of held sway in a subtle in a subtle way by not saying too much. <laughs> As I mentioned, Douglas was at a crossroads stylistically in his writing at this point. He really didn't like being seen as old-fashioned, so he was trying his hand at serialism. He'd had mixed reactions with it from critics, players and public alike. The pieces weren't avant-garde necessarily, but they weren't like, they were Lilburn, they weren't quite normal. This is Ross Harris, another composer who both learned from and worked alongside Lilburn. There's a, the famous example of the brass quartet that he wrote that the players from the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra sort of read it through and said well this is you know this is impossible and we're not going to do it I think it was 20 odd years before it got a performance. A letter to the editor from an audience member decried that Mr Lilburn seems to me to have nothing to say and does so at the top of his voice and a critic said that his piece a birthday offering was really rather rum meaning odd. In 1962, the National Orchestra premiered his third symphony. It was angular, unharmonious and thoroughly modern. It's sometimes referred to as his serialist symphony, but in truth, it didn't adhere to any rules or systems like serialism did. While there were naysayers, a lot of critics praised Lilburn for his pivot in style. It was also the first time a New Zealand piece had travelled with the orchestra through four main centres, cementing him as the most well-known and successful composer in New Zealand, with conductors such as John Hopkins applauding him on the NZBC stations. Few, if any, countries the size of New Zealand can boast of a composer of the stature of Douglas Lilburn. It may well be that some of us take his presence for granted, We have accepted his quiet, retiring manner as just part of the musical scene. I fervently hope that in the years to come, he will write many more works which will show that the Third Symphony was but a further development of this highly individual musical mind. Hopkins was right. It was but a further development. When he was starting to get stuck with orchestral music, and he was starting to hear his stuff in his head, I mean, he was starting to have tinnitus too at that stage. But uh, he was hearing all kinds of sounds that he could. He did. He talked about this sort of stuff with me. Um, that he could make sounds that were more like what he heard in his head with uh, the kind of incipient. Um, beginnings of uh, the electronic studio that he started. At the same time as writing the Third Symphony, Lilburn was experimenting with portable tape recorders. While his earlier years were spent invoking landscapes through his compositions, now he was literally collaborating with the landscape. He once asked me if I could pick him up at, I think, about six o'clock in the morning and take him to Tihai Bay. He wanted to hear the sounds of the first little waves breaking on the beach, as it were, um, and he wanted to record it because this was a time when um, he had 
started on the road of electronic music and so uh, and he just wanted to have a genuine sound of that and then he gave me a very nice breakfast afterwards Lilburn was excited about the new possibilities that technology opened up. He could use the sounds of the environment as a starting point, feed them into machines, layer, loop, mask, distort or delay them. Yeah, that was quite an original solution, really. Um, and uh, I, I, don't, I, I don't like to think what would have happened to him had he not turned towards electronic music. Um, because it, it relieved him of the intellectual side. He was being true to what he could hear in his head, and that saved him. In 1963, Lilburn took another sabbatical. He heard Ravi Shankar play at the Edinburgh Festival, went to the BBC Radiophonic Workshop and spent time with its co-founder, Daphne Oram. At that time, she was creating electronic sounds for early Bond films. He dosed down at his friend's barn in Wiltshire and practised with his new tools before heading to Toronto, where he spent three months studying with Canadian composer Myron Schaefer. And while his electronic music was a complete departure from his early work, there were echoes there. This piece, one of the five pieces he wrote in Toronto, is called Sings Harry after the Dennis Glover poem he'd set to music a decade earlier. Now this electronic studio was largely your own baby, wasn't it? How did you begin? It's quite a long story. This is Douglas himself, speaking in the early 70s to a reporter at the NZBC, the New Zealand Broadcasting Corporation. I suppose it began way back in the 1950s when people in the music department became aware of this new medium of electronic sound. When Lilburn got back to New Zealand in 1964, he was given permission by the Vice-Chancellor of Victoria University to set up a studio. The NZBC and their technicians were very helpful, lending or giving him old, retired, reel-to-reel machines the size of small fridges, speakers, turntables and a mixer. The Arts Council gave him a grant and he bought other machines, a filter, a ring modulator, and for reverb, well, at first he just used the old corridors and stairwells. One doesn't want to use an older word like compose, I think, because it has so many associations already. You know, that image of the composer sitting at his desk and laboriously hour after hour, week after week, putting notes onto paper and then waiting a long time, possibly, for somebody to play them back. And I think the, the word that composers prefer now in the studio is a word like realise, because it, it's a general sort of word. It does take stock of the composer and of the machines and of the whole apparatus of the laboratory. One of the first pieces he realised with his new machines was 1965's The Return. Lilburn and his technical assistant spent 18 days recording waves and seagulls, pitch-shifting bellbirds, and badgering Māori broadcaster Mahi Pōtiki to recite names of trees. Tāne. Hina. Pūkaka. Bye. Niro. 
Again, he borrowed from his poetic friends, this time from Alistair Tiariki Campbell. And again I see the long, pouring headland and smoking coast with the sea high on the rocks, the gulls flung from the sea. It was around this time that composer Ross Harris first met Lilburn. I was in awe of him. And a, a group of us went to Vic to, from Christchurch and to meet Lewin and see the studio. They'd already been experimenting with tape recorders themselves at Canterbury University. It must have been influenced by John Cage and this is early 60s. So, it, it, yeah, it would have been. We would have heard Stockhausen. I mean, Gesang Jungling was... John Cage and Karl-Heinz Stockhausen were fairly famous avant-garde composers, by the way. Um, music concrete things were probably in, in the air, but we, we just went wild, really. <laughs> and it's probably the wildest music I ever did. Now, my ears were definitely open to that, and, and I think fairly early on agreed with Douglas's idea that electronic music, electronic sounds could take things from the environment and it could be something that belonged here. I, I was quite a staunch supporter of that idea. There was a chance to get sounds that weren't available on the, the keyboard or the instrument. They were sounds up from around us, like the birdsong in particular was a huge feature of what was unique. Later, Ross joined Douglas as a student, although... He didn't teach at all. He just showed you the gear and made you treat it with as much respect as he had for it. And, of course, he was very cautious about the equipment and not confident. Um, this is really quite a famous thing known about him, that he, that he was very insecure with the equipment. I suppose a little bit afraid of it. And whenever a new piece of equipment arrived, he would get the technicians from within the university to actually unwrap it and unpack it uh, for fear of <laughs> doing something wrong, I suppose. One of the things he did, if you were playing of a piece of music that was in progress you were working on and if you played it to him and he had to listen to it um, it was a bad sign if he went for a cigarette if he leaned over and started to light up a fag uh, you knew that he'd you'd lost his attention did that happen to you yes 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 in one particular case i was working on a piece called to a child and the second movement had become quite long and it, it might have been the beginnings of a kind of minimalist phase um, but it was it was squashed by the cigarette all students now would would be subjected to a certain amount of electronic sound at some some stage either in concert or in in class in their first year first time I met him I went I was told by Jack Body that he didn't mind people coming to knock on his door which pr- turned out to be untrue. This is Noel Sanders. He's had a career as a cultural studies and media history professor at Sydney University, but he's also a composer. When he was in his late teens, he idolized Lilburn. I was in Wellington and I knew where he lived, so I went and knocked on the door and he opened the door. 
and this huge bear of a man was there, and I explained that I just was, you know, I wanted to talk to him, wanted to meet him. So he did the sort of thing that he always did, and in I went, and um, it was evening, so there were introductory drinks, and um, and uh, I spent all evening yakking away to him, and we made dinner, and it was amazing to be, you know, in the kitchen half half tank talking to this amazing guy, and he has, was the most amazing person I've ever met, really. In what way? He was deep. He was a deep thinker. He was slightly zen in the sense that he was always trying to lay traps for you, not maliciously, but to bring you out and to teach you things and find out what you thought and generally interested in what you thought. You know, some callow young jerk coming knocking on your door. I mean, Douglas, Douglas always said, never do that again. <laughs> Out the back, of course, was his area with his piano and the doors leading into the garden. And I can remember when we were both completely off our heads the first evening. We both needed a leak, so we went out and pissed on the vegetable garden to make them grow. Because there's a good vegetable garden out there. He grew all his own veggies. And there was uh, the makings of an orchard out there as well. And he put me up in the guest room. And the next morning, he was going up to Vic. And would I like to go up to the see the EMS up at the Electronic Music Studio up, up at Vic? Sure enough. And so after breakfast, Douglas begins the, the, the to stride up past the Carter Observatory up to Vic, and it nearly bloody killed me, and I was a young man. And after that initial meeting, Noel tried his own hand at electronic music. Yes. Well, I said, well, you'll have to get started. So I went down to Wellington in order to learn how to make electronic music. I thought I could, but it turned out I couldn't. Machines terrify the bejesus out of me, and basically that's what it was. But it was still hands-on. So he would set me up with a few exercises to do with um, sticky tape and tape and um, razor blades in one room with this ancient tape recorder from Burbank, California, which could do amazing things. Usually he mistreated it. It had produced noises that were, um, were fantastic. Well, he was in the big studio. Occasionally I'd go in and, and check him out. And what he'd be doing is walking up and down, pacing up and down for hours, trying this and trying that. It was all very empirical. Try, it's trying, um, you know, sticking something in here and seeing what noise that would make and seeing, combining sounds and chain-smoking Benson and Hedges and drinking Nescafe without sugar or milk by the tonne. All day. This is what he did in Kelvin Parade in the late 1960s where he was producing this fantastic series of electronic pieces. Some of them are magisterial. And when students were finished for the week, sometimes they'd be invited to the little magpie house at Ascot Terrace. These evenings would be a gathering of some students and of interesting people, young people who are interested in music and interested in Douglas. The evening began with a whiskey and uh, water and Douglas would install himself in his easy chair, one of those 
Parker mole chairs, I think they were called, uh, at the vortex of his living room with the fire going and overlooking the the valley there. And above his where he used to sit was a Douglas MacDiarmid painting of some boys in the surf. That painting was a 1962 painting called Ocean Bathers. At that time, Lilburn was acting as an art importer and dealer for his old friend, McDiamond. The initial imbibement would be a whiskey and water, and then uh, he would bring out wine. And you'd talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. And you'd play music after that. He was always play the Contelube, um songs of the Auvergne, and we'd, we'd all get teary. Everybody loved them. understood that what he had to, had to say was very really important and if you stuck around long enough um, you'd, uh, you'd get a good idea of um, an, an old mind of the sorts that aren't around anyway. They certainly weren't like our rock and roll brains but if you stayed too long at one of Douglas's things he would get maudlin and ask you things that you didn't want to talk about. You made your adieus uh, in the nicest possible way and uh, wished him good evening. And he'd sit there. It's sort of like a dog is when, you know, when you leave a dog at home and you and the dog sort of like, they've taken out, they've, you've taken out their batteries and they just sort of stand there and look at you as if you know, you've just deserted. I mean, that would be how Douglas was. In 1969, Douglas went on another composing trip to Toronto. While he was gone, he invited first-year piano student Bruce Greenfield to house-sit. So we had his house for about nine months, I think. Bruce was a student of Deanie Schramm's, who we met in episode one of the Magpie House. Douglas's house, of course, was a gorgeous place to be. I mean, somewhat damp, I remember. But it was, it was wonderful. It was great sort of being... In his house and surrounded by all his incredible paintings by... Um, his friends. Douglas McDiamond. Have you read that book? No. Bruce is pointing at a new biography of Lilburn's old friend from Christchurch, released quite recently. This is all about Douglas McDiamond, but of course it's all about all the people we're talking about. Did they have a romantic relationship? You betcha. <laughs> While there are plenty of letters to Lilburn in the National Library, this book contains some beautiful letters from Lilburn to MacD, as Douglas called him. To think of you is to think of goodness and singleness of heart. It's as though I were thirsty and you came to me with clear mountain water to drink. People thought Douglas was in love with the woman painter. Rita. Uh, Rita. He, I think, played up the Rita Angus he let that be public that was the illusion that he created so brilliantly Douglas McDiamond was seven years younger than Lilburn he was a bisexual man who found New Zealand oppressive so he got out and lived his life to the full in Paris 
and only recently died aged 98. But this relationship was really important to both of the Douglases, and they spent time together when they could. And the two of them did a surprising amount of international travel for the mid-20th century. Do you think that Douglas McDiamond was kind of the love of his life in a way? Yes. I think that would be a fairly safe assumption to make. And this book cements it all. He was extremely careful. Douglas was about letting any of that facade ever show in public. He was very, very fussy. But living life publicly as a queer man was out of the question for Lilburn. He was in the closet and quite happy to stay there. Remember, it was still illegal for a man to engage in sexual relations with another man right up until 1986. Dennis Glover once described Lilburn as a romantic in corsets. Douglas was very discreet. Douglas's friend, colleague and pianist, Margaret Nielsen. I mean, he did talk about any of his relationships with me, and I didn't want to know them anyway, so that that was much better that it was left as it was. Mm. He was very careful about anything like that because the times were still very uncertain, although quite a number of people knew I mean, people like Jack Body certainly knew. Margaret became involved in the campaign for homosexual law reform in the late 60s after a gay man was killed in Hagley Park by a group of youths and all were found not guilty. This must have had an effect on Lilburn, but he didn't join his friend publicly in the campaign. He did, however, donate money to the cause. Yeah, and he wouldn't have supported something like that in public because, you know... He was very jealous of his reputation, very careful. That just wasn't on the cards, to have that that aspect added to the reputation, you know. Everybody will tell you at some stage that there were difficulties with Douglas and not least Jenny McLeod, who was one of the first persons who said after a while that they wouldn't you know, it was all over between him and Douglas, so she wasn't trying to please him anymore. Jenny had finished at Victoria University and gone overseas to study with some pretty influential composers, Messiaen, Boulez and Stockhausen. She came back to Aotearoa full of new energy and huge ambition, staging large-scale multimedia works. She joined the staff of Victoria University as junior lecturer alongside Lilburn, Fred Page, Margaret Nielsen and composer David Farquhar. The music community, the public and the media loved Jenny McLeod and she was giving Douglas a run for the title of New Zealand's best-known composer. And Lilburn's feathers were being ruffled. When he was overseas in 1969, Jenny redesigned the music courses without consultation. It upset Lilburn so much that he handed in his resignation. Chip on the shoulder would stay there for years and years and years. And that's what happened, and it didn't help him, you know. Mm. It just made him miserable and lamenting, sort of a bit like Oscar Wilde. Each man kills the thing he loves kind of thing. Each man kills the thing he loves. Lilburn was 11 years off retirement age, so he didn't quit entirely. The university created a special position for him, his own chair. He retreated to his electronic music studio, only teaching those who took his course, 
and started Waitiata Press, which published the scores of New Zealand composers. When Fred Page retired in 1970, the head of department job came up. Lilburn didn't want the job, but he also didn't want 29-year-old Jenny in the position. I, I asked him if he was going to apply for it, and if he had been going to apply for it, I never would have applied. And he said, no, he didn't want the chair, he didn't like teaching. So I applied for it, and I didn't really think that I'd get it, not given that I, you know, half the world was going to be applying for it. I did get it. Yeah, well, uh, uh, but it turned out that Douglas was, was very upset. I only realised after I'd read Philip's book that Douglas had actually had a nervous breakdown. Nineteen seventy was also the year Rita Angus died. Lilburn was at the hospital with her the night before she passed. Shall I read you one more? <laughs> Here's Rita's biographer, Jill Trevelyan. This is Rita writing to Douglas in 1965. To let you know if it will help with your problems, that you have not got one with me, please don't worry further about me. I am content and do the work as I want to, in a way I want to. I am entitled to live as a single person with more freedom than housewives. <laughs> Lilburn retreated away from society at this time, avoiding university colleagues and spending long stretches at a little cottage he'd bought down in central Otago. He read ancient Chinese writing, Buddhist texts and the Bible. And he wrote, not music, but a diary which spanned six years and over a thousand pages. It was the one place he could go to try and understand himself, his relationships, his art, and the sacrifices he'd made for it. He writes in 1972, When I think of the wealth of life I left unlived in order to write a spate of inconsequential music in this hapless colonial or provincial circumstance, I don't feel real satisfaction. Douglas would get deeply offended by people who took him the wrong way. He was like that Thomas Bracken um, poem, Misunderstood, and Douglas was very touchy about being misunderstood. The poem is actually called Not Understood, and I think the passage Noel's specifically referring to is this one. Not understood. How trifles often change us. The thoughtless sentence and the fancied slight destroy long years of friendship and estrange us and on our souls there falls a freezing blight, not understood. In part four of The Magpie House. After about ten minutes, I'm playing away in this wine just slides in, you know, slides under the piano. You have to make sacrifices, otherwise the muse will deem you unworthy and will discard you. This is an end of an era. It had been lived in for a long time by different people and now it was moving off into a new direction. This podcast was produced and presented for Sound Centre for New Zealand Music, Toitiara Puru, by me, Kirsten Johnstone. 
Research and interviews were by Jane Tolleton. Our sound engineer was Phil Brownlee. Our script advisor was Melody Thomas of Popsock Media. We had production assistance from Roger Smith, Nina Lesperance, Jonathan Engel, Carlo Margatic, and Amy Somerville. Our executive producers are Diana Marsh, Eva Radic, and Leone Venter. Thanks to the following for supplying audio and music for this episode. RNZ Concert, Nga Thonga Sound and Vision, Rattle Records, Atoll Records, Ode Records, The Lilburn Trust, APO, The Kugels, Tom McGrath, Michael Houston, Deidre Irons, Martin Risley and Donald Morris, Margaret Nielsen and Justin DeHart. Thank you for listening. For more about this podcast and other Sounds podcasts and information about the music of Aotearoa New Zealand, go to the Sounds website, sounds.org.nz. That's S-O-U-N-Z. Nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. Toi te arapuru, sound.